The Earth is not a big rock infested with living organisms any more than your skeleton is bones infested with cells. The Earth is geological, yes, but this geological entity grows people and our existence on the earth is a symptom of the solar system and its balances as much as the solar system in turn is a symptom of our galaxy and our galaxy in its turn is a symptom of the whole company of galaxies goodness only knows what that's in but you see when as a scientist you describe the behavior of a living organism. You try to say what a person does. It's the only way in which you can describe what a person is. Describe what they do. Then you find out that in making this description, you cannot confine yourself to what happens inside the skin. In other words, you can't talk about a person walking unless you start describing the floor. Because when I walk, I don't just dangle my legs in empty space. I move in relationship to a room. And so in order to describe what I'm doing when I'm walking, I have to describe the room. I have to describe the territory. So in, in, in de describing my talking at the moment, I can't describe this just as a thing in itself because I'm talking to you. And so what I'm doing at the moment is not completely described unless your being here is described also. So if that is necessary, if in other words, in order to describe my behavior, I have to describe your behavior and the behavior of the environment, it means that we've really got one system of behavior. That what I am involves what you are. I don't know who I am unless I know who you are. And you don't know who you are unless you know who I am. There was a wise rabbi once said, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. In other words, we are not separate. We define each other. We're all backs and fronts to each other. We and our environment and all of us and each other are interdependent systems. We know who we are in terms of other people. We all lock together. And we are, I think, quite urgently in need of coming to feel that we are the eternal universe, each one of us. Hi everyone and welcome to the Mate Sessions with Cliff Central. This week we continue last week's conversation with sociologist Ruggy. Um, Talisa, what's our agenda for this week? So we've got a burning question and we'd love to unpack it <laughs> with our resident sociologist Ruggy. And we're asking today, is our societal paranoia towards the other, in inverted commas, warranted? The other. <laughs> And let's jump right into it. So 
Um, these, again, as a reminder, it's just questions that come from the domestic workers that we've been interviewing for an extensive period of time. Um, but these are quite touchy issues because they're currently with these employers. And so, you know, they, they've sort of passed it on to us to to unpack that. Do you perhaps just want to expand on um, what you mean by the other? The other refers to everyone. So so whiteness is the other to blackness. Blackness is the other to whiteness. There's a level of paranoia in my in my perception that okay. we have towards each other. Foreigners. A level, of, a level of suspicion. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so anyone or any party that um, isn't in your own image. Yes. So the first question um, we have is a, a situation where the women often feel baited. Um, so they say that their bosses will leave dirt in the couch or they'll leave it under something so that they'll test how thorough they are at cleaning. But that's what they say they're, they think they might be testing. Dude, my dad used to do that, but anyway. A lot of people. <laughs> yeah, do absolutely. That. I had talks with people after the show. Oh, really? They told me that they oh, really? did that. My dad, but my dad used to like hide socks underneath the carpet. Or um, he loved he loved hiding things in between the couches. What else would he do? Um, but in like very bizarre, bizarre places. Yeah, it's well, totally actually, a thing. I'd like to ask you later on why you think your dad did that. Mm. But my dad of all people, right? Not even my mom. <laughs> hey, shucks. <laughs> but Siragi, I want to ask if that is if that is all that they're actually testing thoroughness of cleaning, um, or do you think that they're establishing a certain power dynamic? And if that's the case, then where do you think that desire comes from and what sort of power dynamic is it? You know, it's really difficult to speak on behalf of people because I can't really know what goes on in their minds. I'm Speculate, sure people, girl. Yeah. Speculate. <laughs> I, I trust your intuition. But um, judging from the conversations I had the past weekend, I think one of the main issues here is... Not knowing what goes on in your house when you're not there. Can you first tell us about the conversations you had this past weekend, just to give everybody some context? So, uh-huh. this past weekend I was hanging out with family members and I did not initiate this conversation <laughs> at all. It's just, we were doing housework. So we were cleaning and, you know, washing dishes. And they just started talking about their maids. And... I've, it was so interesting because you see, I think there's a lot of miseducation that happens and a lot of miseducation in our perceptions of what it means to do domestic work and what mm. the power relations are supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of not understanding, which is, I know it's something we'll be talking about later, but not empathizing with people's particular circumstances. But in terms of baiting, one of the things that really stood out for me was this fear of when I'm not home or what we spoke about last week, when I'm not watching, are you doing your job? Um, and I, I also want to touch on the long-term implications of being surrounded by and taking care of the things that you'll struggle to have, right? Um, and it just extends a little bit on from this previous question. But to really be surrounded by someone that has a lot of the things that you just don't even know how to begin to get. And it's, you know, also tied to this unfair structural oppression that persists post-94. 
Um, but do you think that that can build a resentment in the person that just sees the one that has those things and they must take care of it um, with an inability to access it anytime soon? And I also sort of want to attach it to like roads must fall and fees must fall. And I don't want to I don't want to load it with anything sort of prematurely thought of. But um, I do want to touch on a sense of raw anger that's expressed towards what others have that is not your own. Um, so can you can you touch on that, whether that relationship that the, the domestic worker has in a person's home with things that they might potentially never have, could that create a sense of resentment or what other forms of human relationships can it create? And do you think they feel a, a sense of, of entitlement to those things as a result? Okay, I think... As both of you have pointed out so beautifully, it's it's a reflection on South African society, really. You know, looking at our history, there is generally a sense of resentment in society. Mm. And as it stands, the lines, the spaces between the rich and the poor are just getting wider. You know, poverty is such a reality for the bulk of the population and the the result of that is what we see in our crime rates what do you see in our violent crimes because people are so angry mm. you know you're constantly faced with things that are unattainable what we call black aspiration do you think that part of the reason why the apartheid government put black people on the fringes, so close enough to work, but not too close for comfort. You think at least part of that reason was to try and avoid that constant confrontation with um, what they didn't have. I think the constant confrontation would have existed anyway because you are forced to work in those spaces. Mm. But what it creates is clear lines in what is considered yours and what is considered theirs, you know. Mm. So what it does is it socializes your mind into believing that this kind of standard of, of living belongs to that particular class of people. Mm. And this, it, what it means to be a black worker means that I work here and my life is supposed to be like this. Mm. And I'll give you reference to a study I did for work and I was working in one of the rural villages in Limpopo. So we were doing a study on water and finding out how they access water. And the reality of the situation there is they do not have water to begin with. They need to buy water with money that does not exist. And the water they do get is dirty. There's a lot of problems around access to water and sanitation in those places. So I spoke to one old lady and what she said that day shocked me and it sat with me for a long time. She said that, look, we don't have water and that's fine. God made it that way that black people, oh, wow. that black people should be there to serve whites. It's just how God made it and you can't be angry about it. You see, mm, I, um, now I want to harp on this uh, point <laughs> about uh, geography, right? So as much as they may not have been or they may have been confronted with um, what they didn't have in any case because they were working in those spaces. Uh, 
part of the architecture of apartheid was were these regulations around movement. Yes. Right? And so there were curfews. Um, basically, either you were in your working space or you were at home. Yes. You know, in, in the, the spaces in the, the townships, in the, in the homelands, in the spaces allocated with you. Mm. Right? But there wasn't, six. there wasn't mm. time to linger. And I think that's perhaps how they created this idea that even though you were in their spaces, you were you were the other, right? And therefore, you weren't entitled to their things mm. because you didn't, li- you didn't live among them. You were there to do a particular job, like this lady is saying. You mm. were there to serve and then you were out, mm. right? You're, you're linked to function. You're there to serve mm. a functional role and that's it, mm. you know? Mm. And your presence is not, it's not welcome. It's not aesthetically pleasing. You do not belong. And it, it's clear distinctions between sure. what you can have, what you're permitted to have, and what fits you. And the reality of the matter is if you show a person, if you link a particular standard of living to a particular group of people for long enough, they will believe that this is who we are, mm. this is our culture, mm. it's just the way it's supposed to be. But what you have now, right, what you're seeing today is you have what you call the cappuccino effect. The cappuccino effect. The cappuccino effect. So you have a few black people, a few black elites sprinkled on the white foam of the cappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) So you have the black coffee that fills the cup, right? And that thin layer of white foam. Right, right. And, you know. Little black sprinkles on top. Okay. So now the at the bottom of this coffee cup is the rest of us black people looking up and saying, but black people are making it too. But it's so cheap it's, labor as well, right? Because that is, an, that is, that is the coffee. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's essentially what you're buying. You would not just buy foam with cinnamon sprinkles. <laughs> so in that example... And I love it. The coffee is doing most of the work. The coffee is doing, <laughs> the coffee makes it possible <laughs> for the, for, for the, the foam to exist. To float. You know. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, go ahead. So there's constant confrontation with those, with those differences. So it's just a reflection on society as a whole. Mm. Tilly's, I'll need you to repeat the rest of your question. <laughs> sure. But I'm using that all the time from now on. The cappuccino. That's fantastic. But I, I, I want to know, um, how we perpetuate that, you know, the difference, how we, um, because, you know, one of the, the main things that are under discussion with things like fees must fall and, and, and roads must fall is a sense of not belonging, right? Mm-hmm. So we've had access now as, as, black people to edu- or blackness to education for the duration of the time that we've had freedom and yet today we are still saying but we do not belong There's so what are some of the huge gap yeah what are, how are some of the ways that we do that and even starting in the home so so with something like a relationship between a domestic worker and the family okay you raise such important points i think beginning with the movements you spoke about like fees must fall it's one of the most beautiful things about that movement is, look, students that make it into varsity are an elite group. Mm. It says something about your social status or the potential 
of having a particular social status, right? The fact that you're able to attain that kind of education says something about what your trajectory would look like. Now, when you look at that group of people and you consider the fact that the movement was not solely about fees, the movement is about solidarity with workers who Mm. worked in these universities, right? So a particular class of people that are part of the university but not reflected in the university culture, Mm. the fact that you have students representing those people says a lot about our consciousness towards the issues of society. That's such an important movement Mm -hmm. because it tells you that we are becoming more aware of the fact that, look, even though you are a worker, you should be allowed a decent standard of living. You should be allowed a chance towards upward social mobility, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's facilitating that process. Isn't it almost worse in... I always find it so much worse in, in educational environments where you are there to clean. I, you know, the idea for me of, of a cleaner in a lecture hall in a classroom, right, who will never have that standard of education, um, but is confronted with those opportunities every single day, mm. pains me even more, I think, than uh, domestic workers who... You know, who like clean, exposed to things exactly, they might want. exactly. Yeah. Who who clean like expensive coffee tables and and art. You know, the the education really pains me. <laughs> but I think it also it depends a lot on perspective mm. because it boils down to what you consider important. So you are perceiving education as something of value, right? But you're also in a position that allows you to perceive it that way because sometimes what is more important to you is the access you have to material things, Uh the access you have maybe to the variety of food in the fridge Uh and be confronted with that every day knowing that there is no way Uh you would be able to meet those basic needs before we even talk about education. I'm really glad you said that because I think we were referring in part, at least um, had I asked that question, I would have been referring in part to like, you know, um, for instance, a decor in a house. So the expense of art, the expense of vase, uh, the expense of coffee table and the expense of rug. But, you know, perhaps these women oftentimes don't even have a any microwave. concept. Any concept of needing those things or exactly. even wanting them. I think a lot of the times the issue that the issue that would stand up is not the fact that it's an expensive carpet but how could you spend so much on a carpet when you could do a b c d e with that money and actually a lot of time they don't even know how much how the much things it cost yes. so it, it it maybe isn't those things i think we have i think because we have a concept of how much things cost in our houses and how much art costs for instance or can cost um that i think we're asking this question from that point of view because we have that information but i think if you don't have the information then it's exactly what she's saying is you know it's it's more about your basic needs right those will always come first i mean if you think of maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm. and even how Karl marx um conceptualized that it means to be in the lower in the lower and working classes Mm. at your base it's difficult for you to function or consider 
things like political attainment and social achievement if your basic needs are not met. Mm. So if you cannot, if you need to constantly worry about what am I going to eat tomorrow? What are my kids going to eat? Will they have oh enough? Oh my gosh, this breaks you're, my heart. You're not really, it doesn't pain you so much whether you have an expensive Dude, carpet in like, the house. This essentially is saying that even aspiration is a privilege, right? It is. Yo, it it is. absolutely <laughs> is. Yo, yo, yo. Yes, it really is. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be. We should all have the right to aspire to something beyond just being able to live to the next day. We all have the potential to be more, but not everyone is afforded access to be more, Th- this is to mm. achieve. I mean, think about um, the livelihoods of their children, for mm. instance. If mm. they do not have enough to eat, or let's take it to something even more personal. If their mother, and the reality of life in South Africa is that a lot of black people are raised with, by a single mother. And if that mother is not at home to facilitate the growth of this child and emotional development they're already deprived in one aspect. Mm. What if they don't have enough to eat that day? The quality of education that they have access to, what are the prospects for the future? So th- this is always my thing, my argument at the intersections when people get upset with beggars, right, who are hungry and clearly malnourished. And we're all guilty of it. But no, my problem is the, the narrow-minded person... Um, of whom many exist, who will say, don't give them anything. Why don't these people just go out and get jobs? And now I'm not saying, I don't want to make a sweeping statement. I don't want to blanket homeless people and say that um, they all are are desperate. I think you do get those who get, um, who just get used to that way of sustaining themselves. Um, And I think that's a dangerous thing. Right, who perhaps can do more, but choose that in particular as something that's maybe an easy fix. Right, I'm not saying you don't get those people. Right, but I think in large part, whatever has put you in the in that space is is desperation. There's got to be some level of desperation. Uh, I think particularly with food is concerned. So I'm really passionate about food security because I'm like, how can you even think about it when you're hungry? When any of us are hungry, (laughs) nothing else matters. How can you? begin to to aspire to anything how can you begin to be productive in any way you know what i mean Mm. and that's why like there's nothing (laughs) there's nothing in this world i fear more than a a hungry mob (laughs) it's like it's like one of my greatest fears um because hungry people go to remarkable lengths just to eat right um yeah so I think I think what you're saying around aspiration is is uh, aspiration and basic needs is so important. But going back to your if I can use your hunger as an mm. analogy it's also it's also such an import, important vantage point for being able to aspire. Fees must fall mm. another great example. These people are hungry for a voice mm. in the academic system. Right, so you're not you're hunger, talking about hunger beyond just hunger the physical needs. Hunger beyond sense, just your right. physical needs. Right. So hunger can be a point of a gateway to greater aspiration. Mm. Look at 
the kind of things you're able to attain because you're so desperate for it, because you've been so deprived mm. that you're like, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to make myself heard. So that that's another way to look at yeah. it. Yeah, but I think I think physical hunger is debilitating. It is physically, indeed. You know what I mean? And I think first and foremost, you need your physical capacity to do anything. Mm. Uh, so we'd like to now unpack some of the ways in which othering or alienation can happen by accident. One woman spoke about her employer giving her old prescription glasses because she was struggling with her eyesight. Okay. So literally wh- what she did was she passed on her, her prescription glasses to the domestic worker, because the domestic worker was struggling to see and to sew. Mm. Others talk about how when employers order takeout, they will specifically get the domestic worker the strangest meal, right? Based on some assumption. I'm sure it's something we've all done, you know? Um, and really, this is a question about misplaced giving, okay? Uh, where maybe you're trying to be culturally sensitive and then you go overboard and it's awkward because you get some... <laughs> You know what I mean? So like you order your, I don't know, uh, you order your, your steers or your Domino's pizza and you think, uh, for some reason, your domestic worker, maybe she's from Malawi, um, does, hasn't acquired the taste for these things. And so you go and you find, uh, like. Chicken feet. Chicken feet or some, some really <laughs> exotic South African thing that isn't necessarily, uh, no, rather an exotic African thing that isn't even necessarily Malawian. Um, and is, is informed by your own preconceptions and, and your own ignorance. Um, but you go and get her that and you're doing it, you know, out of love and, and consideration, maybe, but it's just incredibly misplaced. And then I think, look, there's people who just will choose the cheapest option. That's also a thing. Okay. And then. Yeah, it, uh, the question is essentially, I think in many cases, acts of kindness are misplaced. And so as humans, how can we be better at giving? You know, from what you said, I think one of the fundamental issues there is taking the time to get to know people, mm. you know, taking the time. And this is across the board, I think, in all kinds of relationships with a professional or personal once you get to know someone you'll be better informed as to what they need and how they need it Mm. so if you want to be kind to me give me something that is actually relatable don't make assumptions ask me right ask me Mm. but and a lot of our society like a lot of our our relations right Mm. are based on assumptions we assume that okay because Teliza is from a particular country, maybe she would appreciate African print. And that might not be her style, <laughs> but you make assumptions about people without getting to know what mm. their particular needs and are. It doesn't make you a bad person, no. It doesn't. But how do we take the time to know someone we're suspicious of? Isn't that the problem with South Africa, mm-hmm. though? Yes. With the world, maybe. <laughs> if, if you can but generalize also, I think that getting to know, For me, 
ironically, the antidote to suspicion is getting to know each other. It is, you know. So I think I think but how do you, how do you go past the suspicion? Well, to get uh, once you've to let somebody when, once you've let somebody into your home and they're raising your kids and they're cooking your meals after and twenty years, your right hand. Exist. Then I would. I'm not saying it happens, tools. Yeah, but I'm saying you know you would think that uh, kind of uh, creates the the necessary conditions uh, to to ask them what they need and to to get to know them. You know. Why doesn't it? You know, <laughs> I mean, because it's it's sort of a catch twenty two. You know, do you? So how do you, how do you get around the suspicion to get to know someone? There have been, you know, many many theories around this, and the one theory I can tell you does not work is contact theory. That if you put people in contact with each other long enough, mm. somehow they'll learn to get along or decide to try find a way that works. Mm. You know, unfortunately, that's not the reality. What happens in those cases is superficial interactions. And this is not even across just racial lines. This is across classes of people Mm. as well. You'll have, we could all be black people in the same room and maybe I look different and People are suspicious of me and suspicion in itself is a hindrance mm. to you even wanting to get to know me. Mm. Do you so th- it's a lot of stereotyping and profiling and do you think it, do you think it's just suspicion though? I don't, I think there's something more to it. I think it can be suspicion, but, um, I think there must be something else there. I don't think the reason that employers don't sit down with their domestic workers and get to know them as people is suspicion all the time. In fact, I think it's... It's more othering. It's, yeah. I think it's more othering because... And yeah, in the beginning, we had the conversation of what exactly the other is. And I think one of the fundamental things about othering is an issue of power. The other, when you talk about other, right, you said something as normal, you know, something as a standard and everything that is not, doesn't fall part of that standard becomes the other. Mm. So othering is an issue of power as well. Mm. So it's clear power dynamics between who I am and who you are and the extent to which we should be allowed to relate. So why is it even important for us to relate? Do you think they fear that it would be empowering? To, to their domestic workers if they It generally is empowering in every professional That's very interesting. In every professional space. That's very interesting. If you want to get the most out of your employees, what you do is you create a culture that is a work culture that is friendly, right? Mm-hmm. And in that way people are more free to mm-hmm. express ideas, to express differences if I do not agree with you and I see you as my equal and not as my boss, I can bring that up to so those you. Those are very progressive workspaces those like are, we spoke about last week, you know. Yeah, those are very, like Google where work relationships are more lateral and it's more about getting the most out of your people, right? Yes. Then you get bureaucracies. And so now I have a question actually I love what we get out of domestic work and madam relationships. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. I have a question now around this thing called protocol. And why we do it, right? Do we do it because 
if people have access to you and you're the CEO of a company and people have access to you, that it might be so empowering to them that it will threaten your power. Which is why you have to go through like maybe five people to get to the CEO or to the president or, or to anyone who's high powered. I think that could be a factor. But another factor is we do what we have learned mm. and we do what we think works. Mm. So even in light of new information, what a person mm. is most likely to do is what they have seen done before. Mm. So it's a matter of changing institutional cultures. Interesting. The other thing I think it might be, and you'll tell me if I'm right, is you're afraid that if you give people too much access to your power, that they'll take liberties, right? Oh, and definitely. so that's maybe, yeah, I, I imagine that's what happens in, in companies with CEOs or with an example like the president, right? Um, when people, when high-powered people uh, get too friendly I guess, with uh, the common man. Um, it can skew the relationship where they actually end up, they end up being taken advantage of. So do you think that's, that's part of the, the reason is to protect themselves that people treat people like they're subjects? <sighs> Such a complex issue. It's <laughs> well, I love its complexity nonetheless. Um, what do you think, Lisa? I did not hear the question because I was responding to my boss. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Case in point. We're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in the middle of a broadcast. You're my responding. Yes. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> and, and what were you saying to your boss? Were you guys having a, a, uh, a lovely casual conversation about how your evening is? Not even remotely. So I've got to do like an all-nighter. And I'm supposed to arrive at a certain time, but I'm not going to make it then. So, you know, heart palpitations, the works. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Um, okay, Raggy. These women talk a lot about suffering depression, largely due to belittlement and isolation. Uh, one woman has talked about how when she goes to the clinic, most of the women there are domestic workers with stress and high blood pressure. Um but it's not necessarily called that, you know, because in African culture, we hardly ever give legitimacy and recognition to depression. So what are your what are some of your observations around that? I really find that to be such an interesting question because I think we are a bit misguided in and a lot of literature will tell you that. Africans don't have a conception of depression mm. and all that. And I think that's highly untrue. Mm. I think the difference is we conceptualize things differently mm. and the Western conceptualization of what it means to be depressed, what the symptoms are and how it should be approached are different from how we believe it should be done mm. and what would lead African people to depression in the first place. So what you mentioned there about domestic workers feeling depressed because of isolation, for ex example, if you want to look at the sociology of mental health in South Africa, not South Africa, but in Africa in general, you need to look at the, sociolo the sociology of African thought mm -hmm. and what it means to be African. And at the core of that is 
the need to belong to a group, mm. right? The need for a communal way of life. And with the way that the world is structured today, people are deprived of that. Now, imagine if you come from a history and a people that believe in that communal way of life and you're pushed into an individualistic culture that already creates such a huge potential for depression. Mm. And now what is the Western way to approach depression is you need some space to think. <laughs> um, you, you go consult at the psychologist, for mm. instance. So it's a lot of one-on-one interaction. Whereas African culture, for instance, if we look at bereavement mm. and grief, it stops being just an, an individual or a family that. matter. Yeah. It is the business of an entire community, Community, right? And it's not a solemn affair. You'll have people sitting there mourning with you, but also singing, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of movement and a lot of voicing Mm -hmm. that happens, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of expression, a lot of art. And that is, it's one of the beauties of Africa. We don't do things alone. We don't do things, we don't express things in just... An individualistic, let's have a one-on-one conversation. It's immersing one of the ways to cure African depression, if Mm. I can say it like that, is what we'd, I think what we'd call it now is a community psychology approach. Bringing a group together and having them deal with the issue together. So it's a matter of how how we deal with it, you Mm, know? mm. I never thought of it that way. That's very interesting. And also, you know, perhaps then it has uh, less to do with them feeling isolated in in their spaces, but more to do with uh, this idea that nobody is allowed in their spaces, right? Mm. So it's about, you know, maybe a way to counter that would be visitation. So it's not necessarily... um, Yeah, I think think space has a lot to do with it and, and, and... you know, I think living in a small space is is difficult and it makes you claustrophobic and lonely. But I think an even bigger part of that is the fact that their their movements are then regulated and they're not allowed to 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 see other people. And I think important to that is not being able to see people who are a lot like you, mm. who who share the same experiences that you do, mm. you know, who go through the same things. It helps when you're able to identify with people. Mm. So when that is stripped away from you, it's a cause for depression. Right. You do you know? think do you think visitation is more important than 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 space, than square footage? I think that's it's could be an individual preference. Yeah. I, we're not we're not the same. Mm. So once again, getting to but know. If I mean, I in, think in African culture, given the example that you made about um, it being about you know community largely, um, do you think that it's possible to feel lonely and and to feel claustrophobic in a a large space? Mm. Yeah, definitely, I do. Because okay. I also wonder about the extent to which you're exposed to the one or the other. So, mm. you know, if you were, I mean, yes, I agree. Like you, you can feel claustrophobic in a huge space. But then also it's about the, the amount of time that you're in that space, be it a small space or whatever, in relation to the amount of time that you're limited visitation. You know what I mean? Okay. So mm-hmm. it's also 
Okay. Yeah, level of um, exposure. But on that cultural, on that cultural point, is my final question. It's a bit of an aside, but I really want to get your thoughts on this. Um, and I think it, it also, you know, it, it speaks to what we were talking about earlier about you know how ignorant is 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 negligent, and it might be fueled by self interest, but it, it's still negligent. So we've often heard the ladies suggest that the dignity of pets is put above theirs. They refer, for instance, to pets receiving medical aid when they don't, or how when we give a, li- or excuse me, when given a lift by an employer, they will sit at the back when the pets will sit in front. One woman spoke about how the pets would sleep in her bed, but she then wasn't allowed to wash her linen or her clothes in the employer's machine. So where the dignity of pets and humans is concerned, what is your view? Is it a cultural thing? Or do you think it's a universal norm that human life should be placed above that of animals? I think that is, wow, that question actually, it just, it struck me a bit. (laughs) But it's so difficult to tackle. You're you're like a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) It's your first time. I should have... It's I didn't so think about that. <laughs> we hear this stuff all the time. Yeah. It's so difficult to tackle a question like that because how do you let's let's just look at the medical aid issue, right? Mm. Like I mentioned earlier, the Department of Labor sets out guidelines for domestic workers, but this is in line with what they need to be paid and you know. But you are not obliged, and this is the reality, you are not obliged to give your domestic worker medical aid. And in a lot of professions, your employer is not obliged to provide you with medical aid assistance, Mm. right? So it's difficult to come against an employer and say, but how come you gave your dog medical aid and you didn't give it to me because there is no obligation to do so, right? right? And they have a right to decide what they do with their money or how they prioritize their money. Mm. So, so it's really difficult to, to begin, even begin to tackle such issues. But when we we speak of dignity of human beings, I think it's, it's a universal it's a universal norm that the dignity of persons be placed high up on the hierarchy, right? Is and it, maybe I don't know. Is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe certain persons. Some people are more equal than others. <laughs> but that's how it should be mm. in the utopia of the world. That's how so it th- should but be. Is that a cultural thing? Do you think? Is my question. Wow, it's difficult to speak. To speak for a culture you don't belong to yeah, but perhaps sure. it perhaps it is but it's so difficult mm. it's so difficult because i guess it it comes to understanding a person's world view as well exactly. you know um i can i can only begin to imagine what it means for a domestic worker to have to sleep in a bed with pets mm. you mm. know Although for because it's not for a for a white domestic worker who grew up around pets, it might house, not be an that issue. That might be you know what I mean? that might yeah. be a 
a lovely thing to do, right? And that's why I'm asking the cultural question. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here, but I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to say that these are things to be mindful of. Mm. You know? Once again, I think it's being able to empathize and getting to know someone beyond the superficial. What does it mean to this person to have to? Exactly. And that for me is an example of ignorance that is not necessarily deliberate, oh, but no, negligent. I can't. <laughs> no, I honestly see your thoughts. I can't. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, but really like, I just think there's a certain level of humanity that you you owe every single human being, right? Irrespective of how much you love your animal or whatever. There's certain levels of ignorance that I think should be intolerable, you know, and that is one of them. I just Which can't... part of that, though? So there were parts, there were degrees to that. I think the idea of um, a pet soiling a domestic worker's linen and then that domestic worker not being allowed to wash her linen and her clothes in the washing machine. Mm-hmm. That for me is like a universal wrong. Yes. Right? Yes. But do you remember we spoke to these ladies and how they said oftentimes in interviews, they would act like they were accustomed to pets and they loved pets to get the job. Yes. Right? Even though culturally... We all lie on CVs. Yeah. Sometimes. Even though culturally <laughs> it was foreign to them to have to l- live with a pet in the house and to treat a pet like a child. Yeah. Right. And that's a cultural thing. Yeah. So I'm saying, and this is around, uh, you know, perhaps to somebody, uh, say sitting in front of a, in the front of a car, perhaps to some people that's not even a power thing. Right. And it's just something they don't think about. Okay. Say, um, Having pets in your, in your dog. Say the domestic worker takes care of the pet and sometimes they're, they're, they're in her bed. Yeah. Right? That could also be a cultural thing because I'm pretty sure the employers sleep with the pets in their bed. Do you know what I mean? They, so, but they, I think they, there's a lot of symbolic power in that hmm. though. Because now what you'd have to think about is if it were another person, either than your employee, mm. right? Would they be sitting in the back seat? I mean, I don't know. I think it depends. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Because <laughs> I wonder just at a basic level, why can't they ask, are you comfortable with animals? Sure. To what extent are you comfortable with mm. animals? But this is what, this, this is around, okay, that's what I'm saying. Let's, let's break this up. What examples are you talking about? I think it's in every possible way that an animal is treated with more dignity than a human. Mm which is a lot of different forms, whether subtle or overt, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's, you see, even, even unconscious actions, but even in the unconscious actions for you to feel that the animal deserves more is a huge reflection on your perception of the, the humanity of that person. I think many people would, would choose their pets above another human being. But I find that problematic. Not just domestic workers, but any other yes, human being. Yes, but I still find it's that the problematic. It's the emotional connection. It's the emotional have. connection, and I think that is a personal and a cultural thing. See, what I don't like about it is when it harms a human. Mm, but I'm saying, do you think they're aware of that, given the fact that some of these women, to get the job, will claim that they love pets? 
I'm going to make an example, right? I'm going to equate some people's pets to some people's children because I think this is genuinely how some people feel about their pets, right? They have the, the, the love for their pets that they do for their children. Yes. Okay. I'm saying a pet sitting in front when you're giving a lift to another human being or to a domestic worker is not unlike a child sitting in front when you're giving a lift to another human being or to a domestic worker. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's much more than that. So I think we should discuss it on those terms. And so for some people, I know for a lot of people, I've just never had these issues around front seats. I sat, I sat for the longest time in the back seat of my mom's car voluntarily. You know what I mean? It, it was just my preference. So I, I've never understood this competition for the, the front seat of the car. A lot of, it, it, it's something that happens, right? Um, but I think, do you think that perhaps for some people it's, it, it's not a thing? The front seat thing. Mm. Yeah, but I, I think, <clears throat> you know, for a marginalized group, everything is coded. Mm. Everything is I a symbol of absolutely something. Absolutely understand why they're feeling symbolic violence. How they're yes, feeling exactly, and I think it is a hundred percent justified. Don't get me wrong for a second. I would like to, as the last question, just to leave it to you, Ruggie, to to try and reconcile some of uh, these idea of 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 the the perception of the other and the perception of the other. Do you think sometimes the one that is othering? So yes, the, the other and yes, the one that is othering. Yes. The, the other and the one who is othering. How, um, how can we begin to reconcile the two? And is there, is there necessarily a blame game? I think, and this is a solution I think for life, mm. is you need to begin having frank dialogues mm. about, yes. you know. We need to get to a place where we can have open and honest conversations because this is... It's that we didn't invent it, we inherited it, right? So we need to begin having dialogues about what it means, what our experiences are, and how do we move forward, how do we move past that? Because mm-hmm. it's not just something that's happening on racial lines, it happens on class lines as well. So now, we need to be able to have frank discussions about the fact that just because you are in this position doesn't make your humanity more valuable than another person's, you Mm. know. It's as simple as that Mm. and as simple as socializing the next generation into truly buying into that, you know. Mm. So I think it. what you do is now having to, you kind of use the same process that colonialism used, for instance. You need to come up with a strategy to rework a person's mind. You know, and do you think both the other, so the person who is othering, do you think that person, both that person and the other, can, in different but equal ways, be victims of an indoctrination? Yes, I think we okay. all are fundamentally. You know, we born into a system that dictates how we begin to think of people, and it's only through making yourself aware, right? And turning away from the ignorance that exists around it, that you're able to begin to pinpoint the injustices that exist, right? Mm -hmm. But before that, you're put into a system where you see that, okay, this particular group of people are treated this way. 
we do things in this particular way. Mm. It's socialization. And you need to unsocialize people from one particular way of being Uh into a different way of being. Excellent. Okay, and I think that's a wrap on an absolutely lovely conversation. Um, My last point, just based on, on, on... you know, what you've just said, and I think you finished beautifully, um, is what I loved about uh, Barack Obama's speech at Nelson Mandela's funeral uh, is when he said what he respects most about Nelson Mandela was his ability to free not just the prisoner, but mm. the jailer as well. And to Lisa, on that note, he freed just the jailer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all and I'm that's saying. a topic for another day. <laughs> for another day. But um, any last words, babe? Um, well, just with regards to I guess paranoia and this conspiracy culture that we've sort of built up through the years. Um, there's a an academic paper called "The Politics of Paranoia" by David Hopp, and he speaks of how all of these conditions, these cultural uh, biases and things are exacerbated by our society's um, excessive surveillance. Um, And he says that this unfolds even in things like, um, you know, besides things like CCTV cameras and all those sort of things, but also with our bosses and how our bosses survey us and our parents and how they survey us. And things like social media as well, where we watch each other, we watch each other through the screens and we don't know who's Mm -hmm. seeing us. Um, and, and so essentially we, we surrounded by these a series of things that police us. And then if we consider the domestic worker, um, because also with an increase in security is the increase in paranoia, right? Because you've got to sort of contain yourself then if you're so exposed. Um, and how the presence of a domestic worker, which is essentially a foreign body in this in- enclosed idea of security and safety, by virtue of her, you know, as a human right, needing her privacy and her personal space, she essentially becomes your weakest link in a sense of security and safety. And so it's very interesting how her position then fills a role of, um, you know, something that is a threat, even, you know, unknowingly, not, not intentionally. And so it's it's a lot of these sort of conditions, I think, that we're trying to unpack on our show. Mm. And I'd like to thank Raggy for helping us explore some of these extremely strange nuances. Thank you so much. Um, a highly intellectual show, but a necessary one, I think, uh, just to give context to all of the discussions we're going to be having with this group. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining us on the Made Sessions with Cliff Central. We look forward to many exciting discussions and um, catch you later. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com.